Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a super quick note before we start the episode. This is part three of my mini-series about Canyon. You don't need to have heard the first two episodes for this one to make sense, but I do think they add a lot of helpful context. If you want to hear those, just look in my back episodes called Deep in Canyon, part one and part two, on whatever app you're listening to this on. And uh, this is the 50th episode of East Bay Yesterday. So if you are a new listener and you're digging the show, there's a lot of stories in the back catalog if you want to catch up. Okay, that's about it. Here's today's show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. You've seen the photograph. It's one of the most disturbing images ever captured on film. There's a Vietnamese girl running toward the camera. She's naked and crying. In the background is smoke and soldiers. This child has just been severely burned by napalm, which is basically gasoline in a gel form. It's designed to stick to human skin in order to inflict maximum damage. Seeing photos of Vietnamese children who'd been burned by napalm was what convinced Martin Luther King Jr. to turn against the war. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. You might be wondering why this episode, that's supposed to be about Canyon, a tiny village tucked behind the Oakland Hills, is starting out by talking about Vietnam. Well, in the 1960s, a group of people living in Canyon launched a campaign against napalm. And the way they succeeded, I've never seen anything like it before. It's like something out of the movies. But I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, the protesters didn't just pick napalm as their target because it's really nasty. It was because napalm was being manufactured right here in the Bay Area and exported through a military base in Contra Costa County. One of the people who wanted to stop that was longtime Canyon resident Ed Johnson. My name is Ed Johnson. I'm a musician by love of the craft. And that's what I like to be identified by. I'm a pacifist. And as long as I got good food to eat and dry place to sleep, I'm pretty happy. Ed wasn't always a pacifist. He comes from a military family and descends from a long line of soldiers. I've had a relative in every war there's been in America from the Revolutionary War to present. My father was in Korea. My grandfather was in World War II. World War I is covered. Uh, even had somebody chase Poncho Villa. Ed's relatives who couldn't join the military still helped fight wars from the home front. My mom worked at Lockheed Air 
aircraft. She was a riveter. She'd crawl down inside of wings. PTV Neptune, I think it was. As soon as he turned 18, Ed enlisted in the Air Force. But instead of training to become a pilot, he joined a program that gave him access to top-secret materials. His job was to take the orders from high command about where the planes were actually supposed to go and write all the logistical information, like location coordinates and stuff like that, very clearly on big poster boards. Remember, this was before the days of computers, so these big posters with Ed's instructions on them, that's what the pilots used to find their targets. In other words... I did the plans for the carpet bombing. At this point in his life, Ed didn't really understand the complexities of Vietnam. He just wanted to serve his country, like all his ancestors had. But as the war dragged on, he became disillusioned. I probably, the carpet bombing probably took more life than any one GI on the ground took in any particular individual career. So, you know, I feel like I have blood in my hands. After he left the Air Force, Ed went from helping to drop bombs to trying to stop them. At the time, there was a group of protesters who camped out in front of the Concord Naval Weapons Station, which was where the weapons for the war got sent from. This protest group was called the Port Chicago Vigil, and they were named after the most infamous site of this military complex. The leader of the protest was a pacifist who lived in Canyon named Jim Bernard. And the deal was that if you wanted to be a part of the Port Chicago Vigil, you could stay for free at Jim's place. This is how Ed Johnson ended up living in Canyon with about 20 other anti-war activists. What were your first impressions of Canyon? Oh, like being in Yosemite. Trout in the creek. Didn't have to lock your doors. You just hook them at night so that the raccoons don't come in and get into the cat food and stuff. It's a great place. And no rent. Sometimes there would be big demonstrations out at the Concord Naval Weapons Station when hundreds of Berkeley students would come out to try to block the gates and they'd get beat up and arrested. But for the most part, the Port Chicago vigil was pretty small. Just a few protesters gathered at the end of a hot, dusty road leading into the military base. They'd hold up banners that said things like, napalm use is an atrocity. It was usually kind of boring, except when things got violent. And you just sit there and smoked and talked to each other about, you know, wait for Marines. Usually they didn't come, but sometimes they did. And uh, the cops had always arrived about 30 minutes later after the Marines kicked the shit out, they didn't want to bust the Marines. This went on for months and months. Sitting at the gate, just trying to make a statement, occasionally getting beat up, it wasn't very fun or effective. And there were protests happening on the other side of the bay too. Napalm was being manufactured in Redwood City, the current home of Google, by a company called United Technology Center. So there were some rallies in front of the Redwood City napalm plant. But again, not a ton of success in, you know, actually stopping the napalm manufacturing. But then somebody living in the vigil house in Canyon came up with a very creative and totally different kind of strategy. Here's John Vanderzee, 
a local author who wrote a book about Canyon. They got an old pickup and uh, painted it uh, navy gray, and then uh, they got a sign that said, uh, napalm bombs ahead, use extreme caution, this sign to put on the back of this navy gray painted pickup, and with, uh, with these canisters, or uh, looks like oxygen cylinders and stuff in the back, and they would follow the trucks and, and uh, do that on a regular basis. And, of course, this is on the East Shore Freeway and, and uh, lots of exposure daily. And they continue to do this for months, I believe. Okay, let's back up for a second. What he's saying is that a couple of anti-war hippies were impersonating Navy personnel. They painted a truck and put caution flags on it to make it look like a real military vehicle. That sign on back that said, Use extreme caution. Napalm bombs ahead. It was huge. You'd be able to read it from 100 yards away. Oh, and these guys also shaved off their hair and beards and wore hard hats and official-looking uniforms to complete the illusion. They would go to Redwood City and follow the real napalm shipments, which were normally just totally inconspicuous, all the way to the Concord weapons base. Again, John Vanderzee. It shows the extent of that throughout this whole area and that uh, we were all part of that awful chain. What do you mean by that? Well, that uh, instead of it being just a distant occurrence, it, it, it came there through, through us, you know, through our streets and our bridges and uh, loading facilities and our ports and, and uh, that, that we were bound to this stuff. We, were, we did not have clean hands in this. What do you think people thought when they saw, when, you know, you're driving on the 101 or the East Shore Highway and you look over and you see this pickup truck that says, use extreme caution, napalm bombs ahead. How do you think regular members of the public reacted when they looked over and saw that next to them on the highway? I imagine they couldn't exactly uh, say, well, it's just a prank. Uh, it would say it would look very official and uh, it would cause people to... Uh, to challenge whatever beliefs they had about that, plus those who had a history in the area thinking back to, hey, I remember Port Chicago, that what can happen, this kind of stuff. When John said that people would remember Port Chicago, he's talking about one of the worst accidents in U.S. military history. About two decades before the anti-Napalm protests, during World War II, more than 300 sailors were killed and hundreds more were injured at the port. The servicemen, who were mostly African-American, were loading bombs onto a ship when something happened that triggered an explosion. The blast was so massive that people's windows were blown out for miles and miles in every direction. So given that history, how safe would you feel driving next to a truck full of bombs bound for Port Chicago? Here's the crazy thing. This strategy worked. Pretty soon after these fake truck runs started, United Technology Center finally shut down its napalm production. But around the same time as this victory, the authorities shut down the protesters too. The only rules about the house were to get along with your neighbors and no drugs in the house. That was about it. You know, and everybody did that, and everybody followed those rules. 
Ed's talking about the house in Canyon where all the protesters were living. They knew they'd probably get raided eventually, hence the no drugs rule. Everybody just stashed their pot and acid with their friends. But then, wouldn't you know it, a bunch of cops show up at four in the morning. And here's what happened next. I saw a guy take his hand out of his pocket before he reached in back of a six foot square oil painting on the wall. And there's a little framework at each corner. And he just put his hand like there and pull out the back. Like, oh, what do we have here? It's just, you wouldn't even be busted for that much now. It was, it was just like, a, it wasn't even a baggie full. It was like three or four joints worth in the corner of a bag. In the dispute that followed, everyone in the house got hauled off to Santa Rita. So we get charged with disturbing the peace. We weren't the principal charges in the case. We were the, oh, we got to give her, everybody's got to pay something. So we got charged a $25 fine for disturbing the peace. And so when Alan Fisher uh, came from along the line of Wobblies, he walked up there and judge says, Alan Fisher, you're charged with disturbing the peace. How do you plead? And this is a quote. He said, what peace? There is no peace. Only war. But as to your charge, guilty, I suppose. And I thought that the judge was going to put us all back in jail for contempt of court. Those fines didn't really hurt Ed or the other guys very much. But Jim Bernard, who owned the house, was facing some more serious charges, like contributing to the delinquency of minors. So he eventually fled to Costa Rica. That's the tactic, how you break up political groups. You bring them into court, make them spend all their money on all their food money and all their shelter money. You have to spend it on lawyers. Charge after charge, this after this, and it drags out in court till you're broke and then you flee. And that's, that's what happened to the vigil. Despite the toll, I'd felt proud of what the protest helped accomplish. I felt it was a personal duty. You know, it made up for what I accidentally did wrong. My support of the war before I became a pacifist, I was glad I could counter that. Ed Johnson ended up living in Canyon, on and off, for about 40 years. He never had much money, but he was happy, which is more than you can say for a lot of other Vietnam vets. I just say, well, I can exist in Canyon a lot easier than any place else in the world because I know you chop a little firewood for somebody and you're invited to dinner. Or if you ask, can I, you got anything to eat? Sure, what do you want? Uh, and you help them. You wash dishes. Uh, you help them carry firewood. You do that and you can live anywhere. I feel closer kinship to my friends in Canyon than I do to my blood relatives. In the previous two episodes of this miniseries, we covered the early history of Canyon, going back to the days of logging and ranching. And then we explored the height of the hippie era, when the county and the water company tried to destroy this town. Canyon beat those outside threats, but we still haven't talked about how this unusual little village full of very strong independent personalities and no real government has managed to survive all these years since then. So that's what we're looking at today. How Canyon transitioned out of the wild and crazy 60s, but still held on to the values that 
drew so many idealists here. Oh, and one other thing. I'm starting to think that the history of Canyon might look like the future of other towns, and not just in the Bay Area. Stick around to see what I mean. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Here we go. My dad actually just had the idea of driving up to where his grandfather's ranch had been. And I don't know if he'd ever seen it or if he'd just heard of it. But they came driving up, looking around for a place to just sort of make maybe an illicit campsite or something. That's the voice of Esperanza Pratt Searles, who was a teacher at Canyon School for many years. The story she's telling is about how her family was looking for a new home after being run out of Yolo County. Her dad was organizing farm workers, and some of the local landowners and authorities up in Yolo didn't appreciate that very much. And uh, then they saw the town of Canyon, and there was graffiti written on the old school. I don't know if my dad told you this story, but uh, one of the things written in, like, the biggest piece of graffiti was, I love you, and it was all things like poems and, you know, inspiring quotes, and he was like, you know, this is the place for us. By the time the Pratt family arrived, Canyon had already been a countercultural hotspot for nearly a decade. Musicians, artists, back to the landers, and, okay, let's be real, some people who just wanted to live out in the woods and party all the time, they'd filled this tiny valley to its breaking point. We didn't get here till 1970, and they were already, like, Every chicken coop and treehouse was occupied by a colorful group of people. But if anybody drove out here in a bus and parked it and started living there, other people were just like, hi. Some of us, uh, I'm sure there were other people that were just like, oh, my God, you know, where are they going to the bathroom? Fortunately for Esperanza's family, they knew how to build. So being able to help construct much-needed homes help them win friends. And her dad, Dean, was also really good at baking bread and used to give up free loaves of sourdough, which obviously made him pretty popular. Oh, and one other thing that helped them fit in, the Pratts are an extremely musical family. Here's Esperanza's stepmom, Louise, describing a typical weekend. During the 70s, we used to have um, gatherings out here that would start on Friday night and they were music gather- music friends and people from the community. And some people were still here Monday, and they'd just sleep in the yard, and we'd have a fire pit going, and potluck, and a lot of music, and some dancing. And it was real social. The parties that Louise is describing were friends and family type get-togethers. But the scene just down the hill in Canyon's main grove was a lot crazier. Amidst towering redwoods, psychedelic rock bands would jam for hours, attracting huge crowds. It wasn't uncommon to see people puking or having sex in the woods, although hopefully not at the same time. Anyway, Esperanza remembers how revelers would just lose drugs all over the place. And on Monday morning, when Canyon kids were walking to school, They'd collect all these forgotten baggies and pill jars. Nobody was too concerned with junior high kids smoking weed, but 
Then something happened that took things a little too far. One time my father got really upset because during school a bunch of bikers came and made uh, had a wedding on a school day in the grove and they had a little plastic bag um, with powdered mescaline. They said there were a hundred hits of mescaline and they dumped it into a bowl and they had maybe like two quarts of juice or something that they dumped in and they were already all really high. But a couple of the kids, you know, seventh and eighth graders, we were uh, like, you know, let's get some of that and see how it goes. And so we had quite a bit of this mescaline and, and it was a, you know, for me, a very beautiful experience, except for the part where my dad found out and was really, really mad. And then I had to kind of creep away because I didn't really want to experience his raging while I was tripping on probably 15 hits of mescaline or something. By this time, even a lot of the hardcore hippies who had moved out to Canyon and started families in the 60s had had enough of their town's reputation as a place where anything goes. It wasn't just the overload of drugs, noise, and nudity. People were fed up with the garbage and traffic and fire risk that came along with these unsanctioned grove parties. So outsiders were essentially banned from throwing ragers in Canyon. And if they didn't listen to the polite request to go party elsewhere, sometimes a shot or two was fired in the air just to make sure they got the message. In the big scheme of things, this was a problem with a pretty straightforward solution that most Canyon residents could agree on. The tougher conflicts were the ones that came up between neighbors. A lot of people came out here because they didn't like following society's rules. So there was generally a live and let live attitude. Restrictions were frowned upon. So what do you do about people who refuse to change behavior that's endangering others? Take this conflict between Esperanza's dad, Dean, and some local boys, for example. Here's Dean. Between the school and the post office, some young guys went up maybe 50 or 60 feet, and they put a rope, and then they did across the creek and back. And Travis was probably in the fourth or fifth grade back then, and he got on the goddamn rope swing. Travis is one of Dean's sons. You can probably already tell where this is going. So he fell off. You know, these guys are all teenagers. Travis was fourth grade, but he wanted to get on his ropes. And do it. So he fell and broke his arm. So I went down and I put us on a piece of cardboard. I said, guys, uh, the kids from the school are getting on this swing. It, you're too close to the school, you're too close to town. I still had my my belt nape hooks from logging. I could climb, you know. Let's go about a mile out of town. I'll put the damn thing way up in a tree for you, and you can have it. So I, I said, so just let me know where you want it, where you want to do it, and when you want to do it, I'll come and do it for you. I went up, had lunch, and came back down. 
they put the fucking thing back up. I said, is this the way it's going to be? I took my fucking chainsaw, cut the damn tree off. I said, there, that's, that's the other option, guys. It was up to you. So they started pissing them on. I said, you know, uh, they're only, you know, you, one by one, you, you guys want to get even with that? Get in a line, one by one, we'll just go through it. And, or you can do it two by two or, or the whole bunch. Because I could whip every fucking one of you at the same time. You don't know what fight means. So in this case, Dean won the dispute. And nobody was really hurt, except for the tree. And the outcome was pretty reasonable. But might makes right isn't really an ethical strategy for local governance. And little beefs like this would pop up all the time. I think Canyon... You know, definitely that is a struggle that we have because we are unincorporated and there's no enforcement and and because the outside agencies really do sort of have a hands-off attitude, you know, that has been an issue where some one person's behavior has made it untenable sometimes for other people and that sort of thing. And there's no, there's nothing but peer pressure essentially to... If someone is is impinging on the rights and needs of others, it's it's only the disapproval of one's neighbors that might, and, and that doesn't always work. When Canyon was being threatened with mass eviction, that existential outside threat united people. But after they won the fight for the town's survival, it was easy for little things to turn into big conflicts. And remember, Canyon didn't, and still doesn't, have a police department or a city council. According to Esperanza, the key to avoiding a total meltdown was having big group projects that everybody in town depended on and that they all had to come together to accomplish. I'm talking about the road repair days where folks met up to lay asphalt after a rainy season had opened up a big sinkhole in one of Canyon's few paved roads. Or the brush clearing days where people pitched in because they knew that slacking off would put everyone at risk during wildfire season. The point is that this collectivist mentality and the actual process of working together that's what kept Canyon functioning as a community. This awareness that if we don't all work together, we're screwed. It definitely hasn't always been smooth or easy. And yes, there have been plenty of squabbles, but the proof that this strategy works is the fact that Canyon still exists and that everyone I talk to still really loves living there. You know, it's a community of choice where it's not just a community that organically grew up around um, an industry. People came to live here because they wanted a certain kind of lifestyle, and that's still the case. Self-reliance is, is a lot of what has been the, um, the basis for Canyon because it was, 
It was people being self-reliant in their own households, in their own lives. I mean, just like was my experience when I first came and I learned how to bake bread and how to live without electricity and how to provide for my own heat. That's the voice of Karen Pickett, a longtime Canyon resident and environmental activist. Even though now I, I don't live without electricity, the fact that I learned how to and that, that it's not a catastrophe, which I never would have dreamed before, I'd never thought about living without electricity, it, kind of, it, it, it does change your thinking and, and, it, and it makes you understand what, both what you're capable of as an individual and how many different ways there are to live on this earth. When I first interviewed Karen in her small wooden shack, the idea of living without electricity in the Bay Area kind of blew my mind. But then, the more I thought about it, I realized that for the vast, vast majority of human history, people lived without electricity. Ohlone people survived here for thousands of years without it. If you look at it from a different perspective, It's our era, our modern lifestyle that's the anomaly, not living off the land. Our systems are so direct here. We we get our water from a spring up the hill. It doesn't come from someplace else and go through a filtration plant. And if we work to maintain the spring and the storage tanks and the delivery system, then we have water. If we don't work to maintain that stuff, then we don't have water. And, you know, everything in, in my house, it like either goes to the, the compost pile, which is right in the backyard, or the paper is recycled and other burnables are, are burned to light the wood that's my heat (laughs) in the wood stove and I have to deal with the wastewater right here on site so everything is right there and and you see it so you don't ever wonder where it's coming from and you also don't well it's not that you don't wonder but you have to deal with where it's then going Some folks think that all our environmental crises will be solved by technological miracles. But what if they're not? Living this kind of low-waste lifestyle that Karen's talking about might not be a choice in another generation or two. It could be the only option. This is what I meant at the beginning of the episode when I said that the future could look a lot like the past. I guess this is one of the reasons why I've spent the last three episodes exploring Canyon. Because I think there's a lot we can learn from this place. Not just by looking at how people like Karen Pickett have lived their lives, but why. Throughout her lifetime of environmental activism, Karen has been arrested, maced, threatened countless times, almost been run over by bulldozers, One of her best friends was almost killed when they were fighting to stop the logging of some of the last old-growth redwoods in the world. Karen told me she wouldn't have been able to keep up her activism 
for all these years if she didn't have her home base here in Canyon? It's partly a lifestyle thing that I can live here simply enough that I can afford to live and not bring in a lot of money because most of the work that I do is is as a volunteer. And it also keeps me in touch with why I do what I do because there's there's just affirmation, some kind of affirmation, like the the plant life sighing when the rains come, you know, that, that these cycles are, that that's the real world. These, these natural cycles are what's, what's really real, and, and that's what I'm defending. Since she moved to Canyon 50 years ago, Karen Pickett has been poor in terms of financial wealth. But the scenery she gets to behold every day, looking out her window, tells a different story. The view from this house is really looking into the tops of the trees, including the tops of the redwood trees, which is pretty amazing (laughs) because who gets to do that? Who gets to watch birds land in the tops of the redwood trees? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned after the credits for a little cautionary tale about what not to do when you're tripping on psychedelics in the vicinity of an electric fence. Okay, if you want to see photos related to this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Massive thanks to the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon. I'm so very grateful to each and every one of you. This podcast can only exist through listener support. So if you want to keep hearing new episodes, please go to my website and throw down a few dollars if you can afford it. Also, thank you to everyone who made this episode and this mini-series possible, especially John Vanderzee, Christina Bernard, Karen Pickett, Ed Johnson, Esperanza Pratt-Searles, and the whole Pratt family, Jared Childress, Vicky Saputo, Amelia Sue Marshall, Roberta Lou Allen, uh, Digital Root Studio, and my beautiful wife, Elizabeth C. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and hey, this would be really, really cool. If you like the episode, please spread the word about it and tag me if you post about it on social media. That would be great. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify and pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Lobo Loco, Krakatoa, and The Owl. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. Some people would climb the high-tension power lines in the fog where they were crackling, just for the thrill of climbing them. And we'd, electric fences, they charge up, and they do boom, a, a jolt. And then they charge up for about five seconds, and they jolt again. And so we would stand in the dark away from the thing that was charging electric fence, and we'd pee on the electric fence. 
hoping that we weren't peed on it right when the jolt, jolt happened. And what would happen if you peed on it when the jolt was happening? Like getting hit on the personal part with a sledgehammer. Bam! Did that ever happen to you? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you keep doing it? Why did you... Game of chicken? Why do people play chicken? Something to do. You know, acid, you're, you're a little bit crazy when you're taking it. you got to remember that. Uh, Can't do everything you think of because you think of everything. That sounds like playing Russian roulette with your dick. <laughs> yeah. 